You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Okay, spot on listeners, I brought in an expert on this whole topic of food addiction. Her name is Dr. Ashley Gerhardt. She is the professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. And um, she is really one of those researchers who is on top of this occurrence. And she investigates how highly processed foods can trigger food addiction. But what she created, I can't wait to ask her this, she developed the Yale Food Addictive Scale. I got to ask her all about that. So anyway, first of all, Dr. Ashley Gerhardt, welcome to Spot On. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I'm thrilled to chat with you today. I know, I know this is your topic, and I, I've spoken to you before about this, and you are so enthusiastic about this, and you have so much knowledge. I wish we were next to each other, that osmosis would occur from your brain to my brain. <laughs> that would be lovely. <laughs> yeah, that would be yeah, that would be great, but it's not going to happen. Anyway, all right, so let's start from the very beginning. What makes a substance addictive? That is such a great question, and one thing that I always kind of emphasize is that addictive substances don't really exist just in nature. You know, addictive substances, there's no like wine river, there's no like edible tree, you know, it's something that humans through our ingenuity, through our technologies, we take naturally occurring substances like some fruit or a tobacco leaf and we refine it, we process it, we alter it. And so uh, something that was a reinforcing substance, um, you know, like a little bit of ethanol, like a little bit of nicotine and, and an addictive drug, it is rapidly delivered at high doses into our body and into our brain. And we also see an addition to kind of that rapid delivery of a high dose of something that's reinforcing that makes your brain sit up and go, woo. Uh, most, many, many addictive drugs also include additives that amplify that drug. And a lot of them actually are about taste and smell. So if you think of, um, you know, a glass of wine or a, a cocktail, you know, people aren't drinking just like straight grain alcohol. You know, they want it to taste good. They want it to have some sugar or some hops. If you think about cigarettes, they have 4,000 different ingredients in them. And a lot of them are actually about the flavor and the taste profile of um, menthol and sugar and cocoa. And we know that people crave the flavor profiles that accompany the delivery of really reinforcing substances into the brain. So that's like a double whammy. You got it. You crave, you know, that flavor. People get really attached to their specific brand of cigarettes. Even though all the cigarettes have nicotine, they want the flavor profile that is, you know, that resonates with them. That's part of their history. And I I, I can get that, you know. Uh, as a dietitian and nutrition professor that, you know, there's like a drug in there. There's something that's addictive and then they have the flavors. But, you know, can food be addictive? That's really what I want to get down to because I don't think like it's like a drug, you know? Yeah. And I think that there is, 
you know, something unique about the idea of, I think when we say drug, we think of like a chemist in a lab creating this chemical substance that like will click your brain. Uh, Something like nicotine, it's just a naturally occurring substance that's an eggplant. It's and you know, this leaf. And and it's it's something that when you refine it and you alter it um, in a way that it's delivered in cigarettes, you know, it isn't there's nothing magical about the chemical. There's nothing magical that makes it a drug per se. It's just good at getting across the blood brain barrier and unlocking our reward system. And so if we think of naturally occurring foods um, that people don't seem to eat addictively, things like a banana or you know nuts, foods that have fat, sugar, these are chemical substances in our society, you know, our body, our brain is designed to find those reinforcing. Our brain is designed to find sugar chemicals and, you know, fat lipids reinforcing. But it's really only in these really processed foods that have started to dominate our food environment since about the late 1970s and 80s that we've created through human ingenuity, where we've been able to very effectively strip out the sugar and strip out the fat. So now it's in its potent, refined state. And then we combine them together in like thousands and thousands of unique uh, combinations. And we then enhance them with flavor chemicals and somatosensory, crunchy profiles. And what those foods do is they deliver those sugar and fat chemicals at a level that is higher than exist in nature at a more rapid rate than exist in nature and with additives that really make them be potent and pop in the way that our mouth and our brain experiences them. And so do I think that the food companies were like, yes, we want to create something that's going to be addictive? No, not necessarily, but have the the products that they've created cross this threshold that they're so much more intensely and unnaturally rewarding than anything our brains really evolved to know how to manage. I would say that based on kind of the criteria we've used with things like cigarettes, which was this huge debate whether cigarettes could really be addictive. They didn't look like other addictive substances. They were legal. People didn't get high. This can possibly be addictive, but it was killing hundreds of thousands of people every year and people couldn't stop even if they really wanted to, even if they knew it was killing them. And when I look at, you know, the sort of highly processed foods that now dominate our food environment, People know they're not good for them. They know they have diabetes. They know they're having heart disease and sleep apnea. They want to cut down on them. And they find that they those foods feel so irresistible. The cravings are so potent. They Once they start eating them, they find they can't stop. That it's much like how we saw with addictions with cigarettes. And so I think these are trillion-dollar companies um, that put a lot of effort, R&D, and to research and development funds into creating foods that they say they want them to hit our bliss point. They want to maximize craveability. They want them to induce moorishness. So you eat more and more and more. Well, to me, that that's all the hallmarks of how you create addictive substances. Right. You know, actually, that's really very interesting what you said, because, you know, like you said, a banana doesn't, you know, you don't crave a banana. And, you know, I mean, I love watermelon. We're in watermelon season right now. But you give me those gummy watermelon candies. Actually, 
Ashley, like, don't even come near me because I will not. I will not share with you. I'm just telling you right. There's no sharing of those candies, and that's interesting because when it's in natural state, watermelon. Yes. Right, but when you concentrate, it's almost like we say in the scientific community: the dose makes the poison. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So, like, think again: like an eggplant has nicotine in it, just like a cigarette has nicotine in it. But the dose and of nicotine in the eggplant, no one is like, I guess I, I know I'm, I can't stop eating eggplant. I eat it till I throw up because I, I just need my nicotine fix. Like that's not happening. But that same chemical is that, you know, it, it's the dose of nicotine and the way it's delivered into the system and the way it's amplified. Even though that chemical of nicotine is the same in the eggplant versus the cigarette, it's it's really that man-made processed substance that is so intensely reinforcing that for some people it triggers that compulsive sensitized behavior. And so I think, you know, when we first started doing this work, we called it food addiction. I feel like now I really focus on highly processed food addiction. Um, and even then there's debates and I even go back and forth about, you know, what's the best term for that class of foods, those foods that have unnaturally intensely high levels of refined carbohydrates, like sugars and flours and starches and, and, or fats, added fats, like how, what's the best label? I don't know. I think as a field, we're still debating that, but what we see in our lab is that people are not losing control over bananas and apples and watermelon and salmon, even foods they might enjoy and find tasty. I think, you know, for myself, there was this moment where I was like, this is what distinguishes these classes of foods. And, and I, we got to figure out the best way to really operationalize it is I'd had this delicious lunch and it was like a, a roasted salad bowl with like hummus and delicious broccoli rub and nuts and eggs. And as I was eating it, I was getting fuller. And the more I ate it, the less I wanted, right? I was like, oh, I'm good. I feel satiated. I feel nourished. I could not eat another bite. Please take this away. And then my husband was just craving potato chips and he ordered a bowl of potato chips and I could not stop shoveling them in my mouth. And the more I had one, the more I wanted more, even though it was clear that that wasn't about caloric need. It wasn't the, it's about that those foods, those processed foods, they induce Moorishness. The more you have it, the more you want it. And I think that's what we see with addictive substances. Like if you have a great big glass of ice water um, when you're thirsty on a hot day, the more you drink of the water, the less you want more water. You feel good. If you have a glass of wine, they're like, I could have another glass of wine. That it's not quenching the drive. It's actually stimulating further drive for that substance. You know, you talk about your lab, and I, I find this so fascinating. And, and you, in the intro, I talked about that you created this Yale Food Addiction mm -hmm. Survey. Could you could you explain a little bit what, what that sure. is? And then how, I mean, you alluded to, you found that high sugar um, foods and or high fat, or even worse, together, um, yeah. found it. So tell me about the, the Yale Food Addiction Survey. My pleasure. So when I first started doing this research in kind of the mid-2000s, you know, we, the, the, the world was kind of being rocked by the fact that obesity and diet-related disease and even binge eating was just skyrocketing. Um, and, you know, we were really catching up in the 2000s 
with the fact that since the 80s, you, all of these things had changed and, and really why was the question. And there was this very compelling line of work, um, including from some of the top addiction researchers in the field, uh, Dr. Nora Volkow, um, you, that finding that, wow, when you look at the brains of people with obesity who are reporting that you know they're eating more than they want to and they need to, the mechanisms in the brain of reward and craving that we see in addiction, that's what's lighting up here too. And there was this animal model work, a lot of it coming out of Princeton, um, Dr. Bart Hobel's lab, Dr. Nicole Avina, finding that, wow, when we're giving these rats sugar, their brains look like the brains of a rat on heroin. Like it's releasing that neurochemicals. And so in the human psychology world, we were kind of relying on um, obesity as just this proxy for people who might be addicted. Or we were saying, are you a carb craver? Are you a chocoholic? It was a little mishy-mashy about how we were defining it. And as we know, obesity has is very multifactorial. There's so many factors that can make your BMI be over 30, some of which may have nothing to do with compulsive overeating of food. You could have uh, medication side effects. You could have um, medical conditions. And so it felt like just using obesity as a proxy for this addiction wasn't great. It also was missing a lot of people who might have a body mass index in the normal weight range, but their relationship with food was nothing but normal, like that they were experiencing, you know, that compelling urges and maybe doing things to counteract that by fasting or dieting or excessive exercise. And so we really said, okay, this is a problem we look at with all addictive substances. You know, 90% of people drink, only about 14 to 15% actually develop an addiction to this alcohol. So we, why don't we use the exact same criteria we use to diagnose an addiction for every single other addictive substance under the sun? And let's look at that in the context of eating, you know, rewarding, tasty food. And so um, it, it, the current version of the Yale Food Addiction Scale, which really reflects how we diagnose every substance addiction has 11 criteria. And I won't go through them all because that's boring for me to list 11 things for you. But in general, what we see is the, of those core signs of addiction is that people report they that they lose control, that you know they eat more or more often than they want. Um, once they start going, it, it feels hard to stop. Um, they're finding that they have intense, sometimes irresistible cravings that when they try and cut down or they try and, you know, cut something out that, that just, they've tried so many times they can't be but they're finding limited success. They're finding even when they're having really negative consequences, like they know they feel sick and groggy and sluggish after they consume it or guilty or they have diabetes that they that they're continuing to use it in the same way, even though they know it's punishing them, um, that they'll report withdrawal, that when they do try and cut down, they feel irritable and agitated and preoccupied and kind of depressed and the way somebody feels when they try and give up smoking. And so we took those, you know, same diagnostic criteria we would use to identify whether you were addicted to cigarettes or cocaine or alcohol, and we just applied it to highly rewarding foods. And so from our scale, um, we do kind of a symptom count of how many symptoms somebody says they're experiencing from zero to 
11. Um, in America, the average person is experiencing one to two symptoms of addiction and their intake of these kind of highly rewarding foods. And then we also have a diagnosis, which again mimics a diagnosis for something like alcohol use disorder um, and alcohol addiction. And that's two or more symptoms in the past 12 months plus clinically significant impairment or distress. It's really impacting your life, impacting the way you can function. And as what we see right now in adults is about 14% of adults and in just a normal sample, community sample, meet that diagnostic threshold for a highly processed food addiction. Um, when we look at children, it's 12%. That's mind boggling. We don't typically see addiction um, to substances in children because we protect them against alcohol and cannabis and things like that. Um, if we look at more clinical samples, like people coming in for weight loss treatment, it's about one in three are meeting for that um, highly processed food addiction criteria. And Ashley, just to clarify, when you say highly sure. processed, because I, I we've done uh, episodes on this before and spot on, all foods are processed. You know, baby carrot is processed. A baby, you don't grow baby carrots. They come from regular carrots. But we're talking, when you say highly processed, these that have a lot of added sugars and added fats, sweets and treats, savory snacks. Exactly. You're right. So in my lab, there's, again, there's a lot of debates out there about the best term. In my lab, how we define kind of highly processed foods are foods that have a refined carbohydrate, like sugar, like white flour, like processed starch, and or added fats. Um, and so what we've seen in our lab when we've asked people, usually what we did when we created the Yale Food Addiction Scale is we went through the literature and said, what are the sorts of foods that people say they're craving and they're binging on? And it was all the foods we just talked about, things like ice cream and, you know, pancakes and sugary cereal and potato chips and pizza and french fries, like foods that are don't exist in nature. They're intensely amplified um, through processing based on their reward levels. And the best way to amp up reward is amp up refined carbohydrates, amp up added fats. But we were, so we've always had those foods in mind when we've asked people to think about filling out the scale. But the next step we did is we're like, well, maybe we're missing it. Maybe people are experiencing this loss of control and irresistible cravings and continued use despite negative consequences. Just as often with watermelon, people love the taste of watermelon um, as they are with, you know, chocolate chips. And so what we did is we did a study where we took out any priming. We didn't tell people to think of certain foods. We asked them about the symptoms and the Yale food addiction scale, that, that behavioral profile. And then we asked them to rate. What sort of foods are you most likely to experience that sort of behavior with? And what we found is um, when we asked people to rate that is that the foods that were at the tippy top of the list were all pro like highly processed foods. You know, it wasn't just washed or cut or canned. It was they had refined carbohydrates in them. They had added fats. That combination seems to pick you know, processed foods that have both refined carbohydrates and added fats. Your ice creams, your pizzas, your french fries, your chocolates. That was the top quadrant of foods that people reported this behavior with. There was a secondary quadrant of foods that seemed to be triggering people. And that were food, that was foods that were just refined carbohydrates. They didn't really have fats in them, but that was like your sodas, your gummy candies, 
Your watermelon gummy candies. That's exactly right. Your Swedish fish that highlight, you know, that they are a low fat food, you know, like that there's some sort of health option. Like that sort of quadrant seemed to be, um, you know, really next risky. And then much lower down the scale were foods that were naturally occurring that had fat, something like steak or bacon or cheese on its own that we'd added a lot of salt to through our processing. Those foods seem to have a little bit of addictive potential, not quite as intense as those, you know, really processed refined carb, you know, clusters. Um, and then at the very bottom of the list were our minimally processed foods. Even if they had high naturally occurring levels of sugar, um, they had, you know, more naturally occurring levels of fat, like some nuts or, you know, your watermelon or your strawberries or your salmon, those foods were just not triggering addictive responses. And this really fits with our neuroscience, that when you look at sugar and fat and you put it in the mouth or even directly into the gut, it seems to release key reward and motivation neurotransmitters like dopamine, like endogenous opioids, at the same magnitude and the same regions of the brain as something like nicotine and ethanol. So it really does seem when it comes to your brain, the power of these, you know, highly processed, potently rewarding foods really seems to mimic um, the effectiveness of something like a cigarette, like an alcoholic beverage. You know, Ashley, I, I've told you this story before, um, but, you know, what you're saying about, you know, sugar and fat and sugar and fat together, you know, uh, when I was in graduate school, stressful, as you well know, um, yeah, get the, the more initials you have after your name, the more stress you have in life. I've learned that, okay? All right. So anyway, uh, you know, when I had a bad day uh, in graduate school, you know, I would go home and I would um, ring up my two best friends and they were Ben and Jerry. And, and Ben and Jerry really, when I was stressed, would just hit it and give me that, you know, soothing reward, that dopamine uh, release. But uh, after a while, I said, my goodness gracious, here I'm getting a doctorate in nutrition and I'm going to Ben and Jerry's. Hello? You know, there's something wrong with this picture here. So I said, this is silliness. I'm going to start when I'm stressed. I'm going to not go home. I'm going to go for a run. And then I go home. And the run replaced, the, was became the stress release mechanism. So how much is this? I mean, I'm getting this with the dopamine hit, but how much is this chemical or, you know, but also habitual. Oh, it's it's so both. And that's absolutely true with all addictive substances. Like you could have said Ben and Jerry's or you could have said my good friend two buck chuck. And I opened up my bottle of wine and that was my buddy at the end of the day to stress relieve, right? That Excuse me, Ashley. I yeah. think you're aging yourself. I don't think it's two bucks anymore. Oh, no. That's so disappointing. Yes, I am aging myself. I must be drinking better wine now. Uh, but yes, habit. You think of the smoke break, right? Habits are an essential component of addictive substances. You know, that habit that, you know, I do it at that certain time of day. It's a little reward for myself. It's a stress reliever are absolutely essential factors. I would caveat like our habits that we have with things that aren't addictive. It's, it's a different beast. 
So I think I told you, Joan, too, like I'm a huge University of Michigan football fan. It makes me very nervous when I watch games. I'm incredibly unpleasant to be around. Um, And I will, out of my nerves and out of stress, I will like pick in my nails, right? There's nothing about this nail that is going to addict me and make me just like want more nail picking. But it is this habit stress pattern. But I don't crave nail picking. However, if what I was doing was every time I watched a game, I was really stressed out and I was, you know, pounding shots of fireball and eating like a bunch of potato chips to stress relief, there is something about those potato chips and that alcohol that is rewarding. And so the habit can also start to take um, can sensitize the system and make you want more and more and more out of it. And what we'll see with people is that oftentimes kind of addictions can start in a more narrow way. Like, oh, I have a glass of wine or I have Ben and Jerry's at the end of a stressful day. But the more you use it, the more you want it. And then all of a sudden you're also uh, craving that, you know, at three in the afternoon. And then, oh, on Saturdays, I put a little tipple of whiskey in my coffee and I have that donut for breakfast because of the substance itself and the way it can sensitize wanting systems and lead to alterations and the reward profile of your brain, it can start to hook you on it. And and then it kind of broadens out in your life and starts to take on a life of its own. You know, Ashley, you know, talk about habits and starting these things. There was a recent CDC study of over 18,000 preschool children uh, when they asked them, you know, about their diet or asked the parents about their diet over a typical week, they found that over 50% of the children didn't eat a vegetable daily, did not. One third didn't eat a fruit daily. But more importantly, 50% of them drank a sweetened beverage at least once during the week. So when you a habit and you're telling me about this fix and this dopamine, I, I, I'm only scared to think if we start this early mm-hmm. in little people yeah. what will that habit what will that look that like look later like. as an adult you know it, you're exactly right so like the thing about addictive substances or really rewarding some substances is they stamp in habits quicker and more potently you know like if it wasn't that great it was like your brain, your brain doesn't, it doesn't stamp it in your brain circuitry. It's, it takes longer to instill a habit for something that isn't that rewarding. And so it's why it's a little bit effortful for us to be like, I'm trying to eat my greens every day, right? It takes a little bit of executive functioning and willpower and kind of focus for me to make sure I'm getting in my greens every day because the greens don't kind of stamp in this huge reward response that my brain is like, great, let's just make this a habit. Whereas if I'm, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to eat chocolate every day, my brain's like, awesome, don't have to work hard to do that. That's stamped in. And the thing is, we know that the younger the brain, the more malleable it is and the more kind of plastic it is for habits and preferences and tendencies to be stamped in. That can be for good or for bad. You know, it could be if we catch it and every day you're having, you know, that that soda or that, you know, sugary drink um, and you're a little guy, you that that's going to stamp that in your brain. And the brain can also be plastic that if 
you know, it's switched to unsweetened, you know, bubble water that's still kind of fizzy and exciting or, you know, some sort of different thing that that the plasticity of the brain of the child should also flex. But you're right, if our whole childhood, and man, we see this in our lab, that if there's something that was your whole childhood and now as an adult, you're like, oh no, like drinking, you know, soda every day is not great for my health. I have diabetes. I'm having these heart issues. I now need to stop. You're trying to fight against these habit patterns that have been stamped in and reward memories. Um, and it's much more challenging. Uh, and we are seeing in our lab that for people who experienced food insecurity, as a child, particularly in childhood, that a lot of food insecurity, you're more reliant on these sort of cheap, convenient, highly processed, shelf-stable, potentially addictive foods to get your caloric needs. That's what's available. That's what can fit into your high-stress life. And sometimes they're available and sometimes they're not. And so there's also this kind of signal in the brain of when it's available, eat as much as you can. Hoard, grab. Uh, We are seeing that childhood food insecurity is a real risk factor, even for people who in adulthood, they're no longer food insecure. They now have enough money to get food. That experience of food scarcity combined with really rewarding food in childhood, it sets your brain up um, to really be sensitized to that potentially for life. I mean, you talk about a memory being stamped into your head to go to bed hungry, knowing that when you wake up in the morning, there's nothing there. And and I can't even imagine that that movie keeps on rewinding in in your head on top of this. And on top of what you're alluding to, the environment that we live in. I, I mean, you know, when I grew up in a little town in New Jersey and there was one McDonald's in the town and nothing else. Now you can have two McDonald's on a boulevard, you know, and, and, and so what does that do? What is the availability to turn around and see all this all the time do for this? Oh, it's, it makes it. So I have to be honest, when I first started to do this work, I was doing alcohol addiction research and I was like, so interested in these parallels with the food environment, highly processed foods. I had wonderful advisors and my um, graduate training at Yale, um, one of whom, um, uh, Will Corbin, was an alcohol addi- is an alcohol addiction researcher. He's now at Arizona State. Kelly Brownell, obesity food policy researcher. He's now at Duke University. And um, really working in those two labs is, is how I was able to kind of create this work for myself in grad school. And they were so supportive. Uh, but, you know, I think Will and even myself a little bit were skeptical that food was really, you know, if you had an addictive response to food, could it really be as bad as something like alcohol or other drugs? And I have changed my tune over the course of doing this research after talking to so many people, especially people who have had actually both addictions. That's not necessarily rare where people will transfer from one to the other where, you know, I used to have an alcohol addiction. And then when I stopped drinking, I like started to transfer that same behavioral pattern, but now to sweets and, you know, savory foods. That was how I was coping. That's how I was dealing. Um, And they would say, these highly processed foods are so much harder than when I had an addiction to alcohol or pills because it's everywhere. It's just, I'm constantly cued. I'm constantly triggered. I constantly have to eat. And so I, you know, eating's part of human nature, but if you go at the 
In the current American food supply, 73% of foods are considered ultra processed. That is our calories. So it is a rarity to have calories available to you that are not ultra processed. And so, uh, you know, billboards on every corner, vending machines in every space. I go to a morning meeting, the likelihood somebody's bringing like bagels and cream cheese and a sweetened coffee for the group at, you know, 8am when I'm tired and cranky is very high. And so this constant sense that you kind of have to be on guard, it just saps that, that kind of willpower that you have that executive control, that executive functioning, um, that by the end of the day, often you're just so depleted. And so I always really try to emphasize to people the importance of compassion for yourself, that I think we're all beating ourselves up, that there is some sort of easy solution or answer like, geez, our brain is in the stone age, right? It still thinks we're going to die of starvation, but the food technology, the food environment, you know, it's at the Jetsons. It's like in, in space. It's like science fiction. It really is. Um, and so where the mismatch here is just so potent. You know, I'm glad you said that, uh, actually, because I don't want people to feel bad. I want them to understand this is not their fault. And, and what you said, how challenging this is compared to drugs and alcohol because you have to eat and all the time and it's everything is around you so so give us some hope because i don't like to be yeah. debbie downer ashley don't be debbie downer on me all right no i will not i promise you so what can people do if they if yeah. they're after listening to this episode they say you know this sounds a lot like me what can people do to help this along so i do feel hope you know i grew up in rural ohio um and i do think i always like to preface this is it's going to take both courageous kind of policy support on our, our change makers, on our politicians, um, to invest in policies that make the food environment promote health and well-being rather than profits for these trillion dollar food companies. But that is currently what it's set up to do. And so just as we did with tobacco, where in my lifestyle, like in rural Ohio, everybody smoked everywhere. It was in restaurants, bars. There was like a vending machine right outside of my high school to get cigarettes. Like it was in an airplane, in an airplane. I am like, could you imagine? You're lucky we're alive. You are lucky we're alive. So one of my colleagues has the the Yale Medical School cigarette delivery box where like they would be in there learning about lung cancer and everybody's smoking in the room. They'd come and deliver cigarettes um, so people could buy them. So things have you know, we've seen this change. We've seen that with courageous action, we can save millions of lives um, through policy, through mar restricting marketing to kids, um, to, you know, changing zoning restrictions. So there isn't a McDonald's on every single, uh, we're not living in food swamps that are just drenched in this. And as a society, we really need to push for that and that it's not okay, especially for our children to be so aggressively targeted. But for yourself, you know, that's going to take work and that's going to take us all asking for change and demanding change. Um, but how do you navigate this while we're pushing for this change? As so, um, you know, as I mentioned, I think we know that shaming and blaming and hating yourself just makes people feel worse and it does not inspire change. And, you know, our brains are up against trillion dollar companies that are designing these foods to induce moorishness. And so I do, you know, this is kind of the controversial point of this research. I don't think all foods are created equal. I even question whether some of these ultra processed foods, which have maybe no ingredients that I know how to pronounce, you know, are truly food in the way that something like an apple or salmon or a watermelon is. And so I personally approach 
really processed foods, even if they have health claims on them, like low fat food or, you know, high in protein. If I look at that ingredient list and I can't pronounce half of what's on it, I I approach that food with skepticism. It doesn't mean I never eat it. Like I definitely eat these foods sometimes, but I must think of it more like it's a glass of wine than it should be the staple of how I'm getting my calories every day. So I do think that, you know, um, trying to ensure that you're getting nourished from the food and it's kind of real food, food that you would recognize, you know, its ingredient list is something like spinach and walnut and, you know, apple rather than, you know, high fructose corn syrup with saigata, blah, 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 you know, something you can't pronounce. So, um, you know, I think we have a sense that eating three meals, one or two snacks, eating regularly, nourishing your body with real whole food um, can help. What we see is that when the body is nourished, when you aren't starving yourself as well, when you're not super famished, that seems to turn down the volume on the reward systems of your brain. If your brain isn't worried that it's starving, if it's actually getting nourished, it's not as reactive to those food cues in the environment. It's not saying, ah, like go feed me, feed me. So I think where I see a lot of people make mistakes, which are completely understandable as, you know, they're struggling, they're overeating, they're losing control. And then the next day they say, okay, now I'm, I'm going to only eat like 600 calories today. And they're, they're mostly eating stuff that's ultra processed and they're not getting nourished and they're really hungry. And it's setting them up to fail because their brain is screaming at them. So I think that is really important. Um, I think knowing your own personal triggers, like in addiction, we focus so much on what are your cues? What are your triggers? As you talked about Joan coming home at the end of the day after a stressful day was a huge trigger. That's essential to kind of we have people kind of journal and monitor themselves for, oh, I just kind of lost control here. Ooh, my craving is really intense right here. What triggered this? Was it a person, a place, a thing, a time of day, an emotion? Uh, you know, is it being on your couch? Is it having Netflix on? The more you can bring that into conscious awareness and know what your cues and triggers are, the more you can try and manage them by maybe, you know, you don't watch TV in that room at nine o'clock because that's always when you're triggering, you go take a bath instead. Um, You know, you do those kind of replacements there. You find uh, stress is huge for me. What are healthier de-stressors that actually fit in my life so I'm less vulnerable to turning to these foods or alcohol or some other substance? And, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, change the environment tomorrow, but I can change the environment in my home, in my office, in my car, wherever I am. So, you know, you can take some control over this, knowing, knowing again, what we just found out and not to blame yourself and to set yourself up um, appropriately by eating better and, and snacking on healthy foods and, you know, making it easier for you. Exactly to try to minimize, um, you know, that these kind of situations. So, you know, this has just been unbelievable. I was skeptical of food addictions years ago, but as I, I'm learning more and more about this, and really from you, I'm really like, this makes a whole heck of a lot of sense because I can feel it in myself when I get under those susceptible emotions and I can see what I'm going for. I want relief. I want yeah. reward. 
and you just explained how these foods can provide that temporarily. Yes, that's exactly. right, right. And then because you're stressed, and so then you eat uh, a whole pint of Ben and Jerry's, and then you have two problems: the original stress exactly. and the fact that you just ate a pint of Ben and Jerry's. So there we go. So we can figure that all out. So Dr. Ashley Gerhardt, I, I can't thank you enough about this, and sure. I think I'm so excited that we were able to get this information out so that people could understand this and start thinking about, you know, how this may be impacting their life. So once again, I want to thank you for being on Spot On. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me and your open-mindedness about this topic as the science emerges. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you about it. Thanks again. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salgy Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?